we begin the wind down of our human being sermon series and kick off Advent by talking about clean spirits. So here's where, here's where we are, Advent number one. Last week we looked at God's primary gift to you. Um, by primary, I mean the one that makes all their gifts possible, which is yourself. And now we talk about developing a clean spirit. We have become broken. And then you see the rest of our um, planned course through the end of the year to wind down the sermon series. But today we talk about clean spirits and working toward a restoration, a new creation, a new beginning. Um, and as you work through that, you'll see kind of um, this idea of water. And I sent that out, uh, a picture that you'll see in a little bit out. That's one artist's rendition of a river of life ultimately flowing from the throne of God and watering all of his creation with life. We'll see another picture in just a minute. Um, but most of us crave a new beginning. Even when you get to the end of our sermon series and we think about new creation, New Year's Day, sadly, nothing really changes on New Year's Day. But we put on a good show <laughs> to act like something has changed. But it does speak to this you know, very common human desire to get a new start, to get a fresh start. A Christian band, uh, the Newsboys, they've been around a long time, um, but their song strikes a chord in many people's hearts. I want to start it over. I want to start again. I want a new beginning, one without an end. I feel it inside, calling out to me. It's a voice that whispers my name. It's a kiss without any shame. Something beautiful, like a song that stirs in my head, singing love will take us where something's beautiful. And many, many uh, of our songs, both Christian and secular, um, talk about this desire. Music at its core has an aspiration to beauty in it. And much of this music that most moves us has this kind of melancholy sense of something marred and lost, a pathos that can't be recovered, but it can be recovered. That's the gospel. There is a new beginning. There can be freedom from shame, from guilt, from fear, a spirit of fear, of timidity, all these things that drive so much of the human condition. We are this really unclean, mess of affections gone awry. We don't desire things the way God created us to desire them. A deep level sense of needing to hide because of that. That's the Garden of Eden story. That's the guilt, the shame, the fear. And these two things, these desires run amok and this very powerful state of guilt, fear, shame drives so much what we do. And we want freedom from that endless turning. We want a clean spirit, as the scriptures themselves say, of living water rather than an arid spirit wasting away. Most people 
we see it in our music and in our art throughout the centuries, most people yearn for such things. Few will do what needs to be done to get there. So my challenge for you today is to make a few, a few more. That's all we can do, right? We can only focus on our community and our group and how we can be more that kind of disciple. And so that brings us to our scripture reading and passage and really desiring clean spirits today and just three kind of big ideas. Um, and then we're going to end today with singing, Give Us Clean Hands. So a little, you know, Communion Sunday, a little bit of a different kickoff for Advent. But in this passage that Dave did a good job reading, he wasn't a substitute. Well, he was a substitute, but he didn't come off like a substitute. He came off very prepared. He came off like Dottie comes off as a substitute. <laughs> There's a part of me that sees the buzzsaw and just walks right into it. <laughs> but um, he did a good job reading this passage. And really what I want to drive home first is something that we have to get. And it's kind of the big point. So you heard the passage. Dave read it. Um, you're probably, at least many of you, are probably already familiar with it. Um, as you hear that passage and you think about this exchange in Matthew 12, what one thing, as you hear that passage, do you feel like God's Spirit is saying to you? It's just a few people. You had to say, what's, the, what do I, what's my takeaway from that passage? Tanya. Okay. Okay. So that's really, he talks about the house being swept clean and put in order, but empty. So that's, that's big from that passage. Nancy. Be diligent, watchful, always. What's, what's the very troubling thing about the passage after the house is swept clean and put in order? What happens? It comes back and it's worse. That's very, dis and then Jesus says, that's what it will be like for all these people who witnessed the first advent. So yeah, be diligent. Anybody else, real quick? Yeah, those are good. Those are really good observations from the passage. And as you work through that, um, yeah, I do want to take a step back and remember the big point is that Jesus is telling this disturbing story from the spiritual war realm and demonization, and, um, and then he says, so will it be with this generation. And he's not saying everybody in that generation is demonized. That's not what he's saying. He's saying toxicity is toxicity. Evil is evil. Unclean is unclean. And he's seen this pattern before in the train wreck, the ultimate train wreck, and it starts before humanity. And humanity's caught up in it. And we have an opportunity to not end that way. But, the but most of the people, the generation that actually saw Jesus with their own eyes, did not avoid that catastrophe. They didn't avoid the train wreck. And this idea of unclean spirits, you know, clean is a symbol from, that God really tried to drive home to the chosen people, the Hebrew people, 
from like day one when Moses called them out. There, and a lot of what was clean and unclean was stuff that we probably wouldn't really ever understand because it was germane to that culture in 1400 BC. Um, but, and some of it has religious and symbolic meaning. And then there's a transcendent part that really talks about, look, God's a clean God. And a lot of what we feel when we want to be clean touches on spiritual conditions. Paul takes that idea of clean in the New Testament and makes this shocking statement. To the pure, to the clean, everything is clean. But to the unclean, the impure, nothing is clean. Peter, who's trying to be devout about the Old Testament scriptures and clean and unclean, and then has dumped onto that all the excesses of Second Temple Judaism, gets the vision in Acts 10, and God says, kill and eat. And he says, no, because nothing unclean, no food unclean has ever passed my mouth. And what does God say to him? Do you remember? What God has made clean, don't call unclean. This idea of clean or pure, really, etymologically, from language, is where we get our idea of cathartic, a catharsis. And that English idea really captures the sense of being freed, being cleaned. But... All of this clean and unclean is really getting back to the core spiritual war. And the ESV does a good job with it, and different translations translate things different ways. But a lot of our translations, where you read a man was oppressed or possessed by an evil spirit, it's not what it's saying. It's saying they are evil spirits, but saying an unclean spirit. And what is spirit? Now, a practical understanding of spirit, and I often tie it back to this because it's one of the earliest mentions of spirit in the Bible, is to look at Joshua and Caleb, who saw the same evidence as the other ten spies, but interpreted it differently. And God says about them, look, it wasn't about what you saw or didn't see. Look at the generation of Jesus' day. All these people saw the same things. More, probably more than 10 out of 12 interpreted it one way. <laughs> And then a minority, had a, as what, just what God says about Joshua and Caleb, they had a different spirit. That's why they interpreted differently. And I think we can take all of the biblical information and say they had a clean spirit. And the other spies didn't. So it didn't matter how much evidence they got. Or even what God had done for them before. If God had taken out Egypt, he could clearly take out Canaan. And they had experienced that. But no matter how much experience you have, it won't save, your past experience won't save you right now <laughs> if you don't look at it the right way. And that gives us a practical insight into spirit going beyond ghost. Or of just, what is the biggest, quickest, fastest way to understand where my spirit's at? How you're looking at things. It's not the evidence. It's not the world. It's how you're looking at the world. That gives you a hint about your spirit. 
And then you have these spiritual beings who are locked in this horrific perspective of just being unclean. And they're never going to change. But they still hunger for the fulfillment that being clean gave them. And the only way to get temporary relief from their own misery is preying on you. Because you're less toxic than they are. This has tremendous human applications in dysfunctional relationships, in abusive relationships. Um, But because it's the mentality. And that's what Jesus is trying to get at here when he's saying, look, I've done all these different things. Don't you see that something bigger is going on here? Bigger than has ever been in the whole history of the Old Testament. That's the context. And he's pulling from the spiritual realm to give a warning. And his warning is that there's an action we need to take. You need to act on the light you have. There's nothing in Scripture that says everybody's guaranteed the same amount of light. Or if you want to use the buzzword today, privilege. And if you're given more light, it is more privilege. And you're responsible for it, how you use it. But the point isn't, and never will be, as far as the destiny of your soul, how much privilege you have or how much light you have. It's what you do with it. Are you going to act on the light you have? There's about 37 miracles written, recorded for us in the four Gospels. It's hard to get them in exactly chronological order. Um, But we know he did way more than that. But there's 37 or so recorded for us. And this passage comes in the as Jesus is doing these miracles, and they come and say, we want a sign. Now, if you try to do it in chronological order, um, this is probably, this exchange where he just healed the demonized person, it's probably about 30 out of the 37 that are written and recorded for us. And they come in after way more than 30 examples. We want a sign. And Jesus says, No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. But see, we have to think. We have to be contemplative. Because it's written and recorded for us that not including his own resurrection, which is what he's referring to at the sign of Jonah, that he did at least seven more miracles after this, including feeding 5,000, feeding (laughs) 4,000. This is not the last miracle he did. Nowhere close to that. But he says to this target audience, No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. This is what we have to get. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no evidence is going to be enough. That's what he's saying. So if you really want to get your spirit clean, you've got to deal with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the advent. And that really boils it down to what he's getting at here in Matthew 12. what the apostles say. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
That's the sign. You're getting signs every day. But if we're not willing to deal with that sign and act in faith to it, it's never going to be enough. We need to remember and not be naive and not just focus on the pleasantries of the Advent season. And they're beautiful. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. But this, that said at the beginning of the first Advent, and how did that Advent end? For most people, it wasn't good. They weren't responsive. They didn't act on the light they had. But we shouldn't be cynical either because Jesus gives examples where people did respond to the light they had. The people of Nineveh repented the preaching of Jonah. The queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth on a rumor of Solomon's wisdom. See, the key is not your... Not, I'm not saying God's not a moral God or that God isn't a lawful God. But the key isn't moralism or legalism. The key is, what are you doing with the light you have? Do you believe it? And if you believe it, and you really believe it, you will act on it. So, and Jesus gives examples in other passages of other people that had less light but if they'd been given the benefit of the amount of light that the people that were witnesses of the first advent had, they would have repented, including Sodom and Gomorrah. But Sodom and Gomorrah had light, they didn't respond to it. But they're gonna fare better on Judgment Day than this audience that Jesus is talking about right there. This is very important for us living in the United States today because we have a massive amount of light and the ease of access to it. What are we doing with it? What does acting on the light you have mean today? Because that's the turning point for that first Advent generation. What does it mean to you today to act on the light you have? Anybody want to share? Tori. Okay, so what did the worship reading talk about today? That ties in right into the worship reading. Is people are like flowers and grass. And, you know, don't misunderstand Isaiah or, or the heart of God in it. God deeply, deeply, deeply values people. Obviously, if we understand and we believe Christ is who he said he was and is, God so loves people. But our hope is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we should be really, really students of the word because that's what endures forever. 
That's, so act on it. Anyone else? Andy. Be practitioners. I don't mean it like they do, Andy. Saw Vesta's hand coming up here. And he probably gives it, what, you, what she said, if you couldn't hear her, was just making that conscious choice in the present moment every time you get that urging to just obey it and walk with the Spirit. I think God gives us that urging far more often than we feel that urging. And then there's all the times that we actually consciously feel it, but don't do it. <laughs> and then there's the times that we do, and it's great, which says something about God's heart, because most of us, if, I mean, God... It really is like this. It's like he's a jilted lover that we're cheating on again and again and again. But if we really get clean, then it's like, okay, there's something we can build on there if we really get in step. And that's the hard thing for us with other people is understanding when your trust has been violated so many times, how, how do I figure that out? But I'm not trying to get into that so much as just the beauty of God's heart to be able to let all that go so that his spirit doesn't become toxic. His spirit stays clean. And the source of cleaning for us. We have to act on the light we have because if we do not, if we do not act on the light we have, there is no way to stop, there is no way to stop the descent into hell. There, there is no other way. So we already talked about some, and we already heard impacts, so just think about that question. Uh, we already heard some feedback, I'm sorry. What troubles you about this passage? I kind of asked that one at the beginning of the sermon. It comes back. <laughs> it's worse. That's just the way toxicity is. That's the way evil is. That's the way dysfunction is. That's the way cancer is. That's just the way demons are. And that's troubling. But most people seek God's help when their house gets messy enough. And the house at Israel was messy. I mean, there's a lot of open demonic stuff going on that Jesus is running into and that the people were very aware of and were kind of just living with it. It was pretty bad. And so they wanted to get their house cleaned up. But as was said right at the very beginning, Tanya nailed it, was, but they weren't really wanting to be occupied with them. He talks about a house that when the toxic spirit comes back that is swept clean and put in order, but empty. And the idea of empty here is not like Philippians 2, where Christ emptied himself. That has to do with what you glory in, your willingness to serve, kind of taking your ego out of the equation. That's not what this is talking about. This idea of empty or unoccupied is like a proper office left unfilled. 
And of course, the proper office is God's spirit <laughs> and being occupied with Christ. And so we do this in small ways all the time. We get discouraged enough, upset enough, frustrated enough with our life that we run to Jesus and say, sweep me clean and put me in order. It's like, I can do that for you. It's not going to save you. Might make you feel better for a little while. But all that toxic stuff in you, it's territorial. It has a mind of its own. It doesn't want to leave. And it has no rest except by taking yours. So you see that second picture, you have you know, the throne, right? And flows a water of life, and then below it, an arid wasteland. That's the picture Jesus is painting here. When an unclean spirit is driven out of someone, it wanders through arid places. The ESV, again, waterless places. Places with no water. It's cut off from the throne of God. Might still have access to accuse you day and night there but it's not connected. What did Jesus say? If a man believes in me from out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. We know this. We know this arid state emotionally. We all do. We all battle it. Are you battling it the right way? because you're never going to get lasting water any other way. And it isn't about letting other people see your life that it's all swept clean and orderly. It, if you're occupied with Jesus, guess what? Your life will clean up and it will be more orderly. <laughs> but that isn't the thing. That's what we want because we're shamed. And so we want people to think that we have our act together. And Jesus is talking about, are you occupied? The unclean spirit has no rest. They're truly psychopathic. They wander through empty, arid places, waterless places. The only, that's torment for them, like dying of thirst through an arid land. And the only relief for their torment is to take their torment, dump it on you, and suck out your water. That's, on a small level, what you call toxic relationship. <laughs> and they can manipulate you by eliciting like a false pity. We should pity them, but they don't really want you to pity them. They just want your water. And that's how they gain access. They relieve their thirst and torment by feeding on you. That's a demon quite literally, an unclean spirit. But Jesus' point is not the demon. It's learn. Because <laughs> that will be your condition if you're not occupied with him. That's why he's bringing it up. He's not trying to freak us out about you know, this poltergeist world, twilight zone, crazy stuff. That can freak you out. But that isn't really his main point. He's being brutally real about our condition. And he wants 
the top half of that second picture for us. This is what he created us for. This, not this. <laughs> he will die rather than leave you there. How does love go wrong? This will begin to be a bridge to next week. But what you have is God is love. And love attaches to things and people that it cares about. And attachment's fine if it stays loving. But the more attached we get, the more territorial we get. And that's when it starts to go bad. Because evil spirits are very territorial. Because they still have that attachment, but they don't have love. And once you get territorial, you get possessive. And we assign all kinds of meaning to things that we get attached to that grant us relief when we're in torment. This is more relevant than we realize, even in our hoarding tendencies. And we can't let go. And we become possessive. But when you become possessive, the thing that you are possessive of is actually possessing you. And God shows us, God has love, God has attachment, God can let go. An unclean spirit cannot. All of us have met people where it doesn't matter how much time goes by, they have a problem with you the first time they see you again. <laughs> That's not clean. And some of us don't say it, but we're thinking it. <laughs> the first time we see them. And some of that's working through your hurt and you see the person so it brings all that back. And some of that is just unclean. And we need to get clean. Imagine all that emotionally and relationally, and God wakes up and sees his children, and his mercies are new every morning, every single one. Because he's clean. And to the clean, everything is clean. Isn't that beautiful? Let's sing about it. And the praise band make their way forward and we'll close our service with this song. I'm going to say a prayer. Father, give us a clean spirit. Give us clean hands and clean hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.